0: This is the Safari. The Safari is a around the consumer brand and retailing industry and we have the great privilege here at my company Traub to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer brand and retail world and I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day but uh, memorialize it into a podcast, which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. Today, we're going to talk about how people cross borders. We've, we've done a lot of global e-commerce cross-border work on this podcast, but we're now going to talk about coming to America. Coming to America is obviously something that many businesses want to do, and they sometimes think it's going to be very easy. And it's a big country. It's got lots of different states, 50, obviously, and there's different jurisdictions and different laws in each, and there's federal elements to think about as well. And so, coming to America, we're going to talk to two great experts in operating businesses in the consumer retail space here. And the first is David Rabinowitz who is the co-chair of Goldstein Stores Retail Restaurant and Consumer Group he's also the editor of their blog named The Retail Law Advisor and he is a 30-year lawyer who has experience in both the real estate side and the retail side of our industry and there are a few people who knows much about how to set up a business Set up shop, I was about to say, but yes, that's exactly what he helps people do. And then Jeff Lurie, who is the partner at Traub, who focuses on optimization as well as interim management of all of our practices here at the company. And Jeff Lurie is not only an incredible talent in those areas, but he's uh, got a wonderful baritone South African accent, which will give you happy thoughts. So Let's get started. David Rabinowitz, thank you so much for joining us on the Safari. And we're also joined by Jeff Lurie, my partner at But We're going to have a conversation about some of the plumbing of doing business, not only in the United States, but I'm sure around the world and, uh, and particularly from a legal perspective. And so, David, t- tell everyone a little bit about your firm and, and, and your practice in, in the legal
1: realm of the retailing and consumer industry. Well, first, Morty, it's a pleasure being here, and thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I really like the title of your podcast, The Safari.
2: I was going to wear a hat, but I didn't have enough time to get out. Uh, no, but well, you're wearing khaki. Cock- there yeah. you go. There you go. I guess the reason I'm asked every year is The Safari, because I come from Africa. <laughs> there go. Uh, yeah, coming Lions from New Jersey, I can't thing. say
1: that. Um, so I'm a partner in the law firm of and uh, Goulston & Stores. Goulston & Stores was founded in 1900. We're about 215 lawyers. That makes us these days a medium-sized firm. Uh, half of our lawyers practice in the real estate area, so we're one of the larger real estate groups, and I'm co-chair of our retail industry group. We have 50 lawyers that practice primarily representing retail property owners and retailers in every, almost every legal need they need. So whether it be real estate, leasing, tax, employment law, intellectual property, litigation, and perhaps bankruptcy, uh, we can basically do a one-stop shop. My practice is focused in retail, retail development and leasing. I represent both landlords and retailers. On the retailer side, we represent very, very large retailers that are global names, global brands that either buy or lease their real estate and build their stores themselves and own their stores to smaller stores uh, that are either startup companies or existing You know, mature companies that do uh, do stores either in the central district districts in Manhattan or throughout the country in malls. So it's really it's Mm -hmm. it's across the sector of retailers and and, and domestic and international.
0: And and that's great. And Jeff, um, obviously, you guys uh, have known each other now for uh, a few years. And Jeff at Traub has a, a very sort of obvious focus on companies and operating companies and optimization and of, of growth companies, but also companies that need a little hug. Maybe, Jeff, explain your area of focus and, and how you guys know each other and, and, and how, you, how, how this fits together a little bit.
2: Well, m- my area of focus is primarily in optimizing the operations of companies. Uh, if I want to coin a phrase, I would say, I'm the guy that makes the trains run on time. And uh, how David and I met was interesting, uh, we shared uh, an elevator one day uh, <laughs> in the same elevator bank in the same building in which both of our offices were. Uh, and it actually goes uh, a little further back than that.
1: So I was at a conference in um, in France, the oh, BAPIC conference.
2: Right, that's right.
1: And um, it's a conference where all the European and UK retailers congregate. Um, that's where they go every year. So I was there either the first or second time, and I was talking with somebody and wanted to... Get information about retailers from Europe that were interested in coming to the United States, and she mentioned um, a consultant in London, Nigel, I think his name mm-hmm. was, at Trout, and um, uh, yeah. I got back to the United States and I called up Nigel. And we were talking, and I said, "He says I have a New York office." And I said, "Where is it?" He said, "It's in your building." <laughs> so I shouted for uh, Jeff, and uh, he answered. There we go. And he happened to be in the elevator. That's there right. we go. Uh, that is
2: an interesting story, but uh, it was—it's amazing because what what we do in terms of helping companies uh, optimize their operations, uh, and David is the real estate guy. And it turned out that that he had a particular client that wanted to come to the United States and. First thing he did was call up a lawyer. And the second thing he did was call up a real estate broker. Mm-hmm. And they were flying over to look at locations. And, you know, David said, wait, before you do that, you know, I'd like you to talk to these guys because they they can help you decide what kind of retailer you really want to be, what your demographics are, and, you know, can help you actually choose the area in which your location could be so you could focus your real estate broker. And that's how we made. Mm-hmm.
0: I've said this before uh, in the introduction, but I think this whole conversation will be around how companies should launch themselves into their direct-to-consumer initiatives, whether it's in the United States or anywhere around the world, frankly, but I think it'll be helpful to maybe focus here. And through the lens of Jeff Lurie, optimizer-in-chief, uh, and David, who obviously knows the, the legal... Um, Top spin to put on every situation. And obviously, your practice is in the retail uh, and real estate side, but obviously, you have, you touch IP and all the other elements. So, I, I'll start off with how is it that companies come to this country and hire a PR firm and a real estate broker and then off they go? Maybe they hire a law firm, but I think that's actually some of the more enlightened ones without doing a plan. I mean, it's sort of ready, shoot, aim. How do you, do you see that often? I mean, uh, and and how would you advise people to do it right?
1: Um, so that's an excellent question. And um, it continues to this day, notwithstanding experience of other retailers coming and people talking amongst themselves. Um This is a relationship industry, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. So people talk. Um, We meet with retailers from Europe and the UK, and some of them actually spend a couple of years studying the market. Uh, They do a feasibility study. Uh, They look at who the competition is. Uh, We advise them to hire a consultant like Traub uh, to really look at that. And those are the ones that I think do it right and have the best chance of success. Many others, though, probably the majority talk to their European or UK real estate broker and say, we want to open the United States. And that broker will introduce them to some counterpart in the United States, a broker, sometimes with their same company, sometimes not. And they fly over here and they spend a week here and they look at, uh, they get a feel from they walk Manhattan, they walk the streets, they look at different neighborhoods, they go with the brokers and actually look at some sites. And uh, then they go from there. And uh, if they, if they do talk with us, and hopefully they'll talk with us, you know, we kind of put the brakes on, or recommend to put the brakes on, and really start asking questions like, "Who's your competition? Um, if if it's a uh, if it's an apparel store, how is your apparel going to be received in the United States? Is the U.S. customer mm-hmm. different?" And these yeah. are not questions that I answer; it's yeah. questions I pose to make them step back and think, and then I suggest them that perhaps the next step should be to hire a consultant.
0: Yeah, so I, I was actually, you're right, going to ask Jeff to opine on some of that stuff, but talk about, you know, just setting up a company, let alone understanding real estate law by state. I mean, talk about some of the legal implications well, of saying, you know, I'm going to come to
2: America. Just before David does that, that's one of the things I learned. I mean, you know, I I know what I know, and I tell the companies what they have to do from a business perspective, but until I actually talked to David, I didn't realize just how much regulatory and and legal and employment practices and so forth that these companies do very little research on and that are very different in the United States than elsewhere. So um,
1: from a legal perspective, um, sometimes we have those conversations early on. Sometimes it's a little bit later in their thinking. Uh, We try to, if we can, get to the companies early so that um, we have the ability to have them do it correctly. Cause it's easier to do it correctly at the beginning it might be a little bit more expensive but if they don't do it right to start and we have to come in and fix it later it's going to be even that much more money so one of the first things we recommend is when they set, come to the united states even before they set up a u.s entity so a u.s holding company and the I, the reason to do that is so that when they start entering into legal contracts whether it be leases or other types of contracts in the united states they do it in that name and they um, they're able to um, to protect the European parent that has the assets, and that's something they don 't really realize um, it's something we recommend, and most of them do and it 's not an expensive thing to do and then uh, when we're starting to look at stores and leases, there's two thoughts on how to do this if it 's only one store, it 's easy. you just set up a sub entity in an lLC and that'll be actually the tenant under the lease we'll get into security and guarantees in a minute. Mm-hmm. If they're going to open multiple stores, there's two schools of thought. One is to have separate entities for each store location so that if one doesn't work out, the liability is limited to that one company Mm -hmm. and not the others. Um, Or you can do it all in one entity. Um, Once you get a certain critical mass of stores, it's administratively burdensome to have a lot of different LLCs. So at that point, it probably makes sense to consolidate everything. Um, Negotiating leases in Manhattan where the United States, but especially Manhattan or New York City, is a lot different than the lease negotiation in Europe and the UK. First, the laws are a lot different. In the US, we tend to be more landlord friendly than in the UK mm-hmm. and in Europe. Uh, for instance, we don't have automatic renewal rights or rent resets uh, that has to be negotiated for when you're doing a lease. That's something that retailers really don't understand. Mm-hmm. In terms of business practices, the retail brokers here, the tenant's broker gets paid by the landlord and it's factored into rent. And that's something that's usually a surprise to a European or a UK retailer because there they pay their own brokers and they shake their heads and they say, wait a second, if the landlord's paying my broker rent, you know, we're kind of like at a different place where you mm-hmm. don't have the same interest. And that, that could be true, but you yeah, have to depend on getting the right broker. So when it comes to actually doing the lease, um, if you're going to do it in an entity, the entity has to have enough sufficient net worth to be able to satisfy its obligations to the lease. And one of the difficulties is with a new retailer coming into the United States, there's no history. There's no track record. And the, the U.S. property owner really has no idea how they're going to perform. Even if they have 60 stores in Europe, that might be fine. And perhaps the, the U.S. landlord might even go over to Europe to check them out. But in terms of the U.S., they don't have a track record. So there's a real discussion and negotiation about what type of security has to be put up. And again, the goal is to protect the European parent. So we don't want to give a parent guarantee from Europe. So typically the discussion has to go between if you have a separate LLC, you have a U.S. holding company that's going to guarantee the lease, and then what amount of cash or letter of credit do you need to put up to satisfy the security requirements. Mm-hmm. And then we negotiate that, okay, if they're a good tenant for two years, it burns down. So there's less up and goes on. And then as that retailer is successful and opens more and more stores, then the, the property owners in the United States get more comfortable with that retailer. And the security yeah. issue is less than than in the past.
0: So so that's a, a wonderful opening summary of some of the first things to think about. Jeff, on the coming to America uh, headline, as it were, uh, competitive landscape, uh, uh, assessing how one might enter, whether it be omni-channel stores, department store. Talk about the,
2: the physical, the diagnostic that you recommend. Well, everybody's proud of what they have, okay? And my experience is that when foreign companies want to come to the United States, they've already thought that they have a competitive edge. I've got something that isn't available there. And so they say, well, I'm going to come and I'm going to come to the United States and I'm going to show them what I can do. As a practical matter, what, what needs to happen and what I always do with the clients is to say, look, um, I, want to, I want to give you a diagnostic. I want to understand everything about your company, from the financial resources to your product, to your marketing, uh, to your supply chain, to your ability to fulfill, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and, and compare that against the competition, So that you can understand what your competitive environment looks like, from pricing to product to sizing. Sizing, particularly in apparel, is is really different. If you, uh, I remember when I was the CEO of the North Face, uh, when I first got involved over there, we used to sell stuff to Japan, and we couldn't. It it just wasn't a successful business until somebody figured out that sizing is all different uh, in Asia. Uh, But. So essentially, uh, you know, it's 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 a diagnostic, and I can see the clients getting itchy and saying, "Why are you asking all these questions? I want to go already." Um, and then what happens is uh, you have they have to take an approach that fits in with the American marketplace. For example, if you were in the apparel business, the the foreign companies, particularly European companies, don't really understand that the markdown procedures mm-hmm. that exist in the United States are totally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, In Europe, it's a lot more of a gentlemanly game. You have sales at certain times of the year, and you sail at the end of a season. Uh, In America, we can have a sale all the time and deep (laughs) all the time. Okay, Okay. and they don't really understand it, and they that's that's
0: killed a lot of or buried a lot of European retailers already here who came and didn't understand that.
1: But from a legal perspective, you can't do a markdown unless you have. An original price, so you just can't start with the markdown or discount. So there's some thinking that has to go mm-hmm. into that before you start offering discounts or promotions.
2: No, I understand that, but but you know, if you are a uh, if if you are a uh, um, a, a foreign company, uh, and let's assume that you sell, you have retail, and you also sell to department stores, you don't control when they mark it down. Mm-hmm. They control that. And in many cases, particularly if you're a new resource, they're going to demand margin guarantees from you. Yeah. So uh, you know, it's up to them. You put it on full price for two weeks. They mark it down. At the end of the season, they come back and say, "Guess what? You owe me money. Yeah. You promised me I'd make thirty five percent, and I had to mark it down, and I only made 30, So yes, where's my check for five? Yeah. So
0: I mean, so the, there's a, an exploration about retail, uh, but also about how to navigate the department store industry, which is still the lion's share of of of, of how business is done in many parts
2: of the industry. And I'll give you something else. Uh, the employment practices. The employment practices here in the United States are very different, actually from an employer's point of view, better than in, in foreign countries. Uh, here we have part-time employees that occupy about 70% of retail employees and they don't have benefits. So you have to figure out how to manage the business. In, in Europe, you own the employee.
1: So that, that's, a, that's a good point, Jeff. In the United States, it's it's at will, mostly, employees, which is different than it is in Europe and the UK. Um, but one of the places that's easier to get caught up from a retailer's perspective is litigation from employees, whether it be a discrimination suit based upon gender, upon sex, um, upon whatever. And in order to protect against that, and this is really where we, we emphasize to these retailers, is they have to have... Uh, employer employee manuals, they have to have procedures and processes in place in order to protect themselves in case they get sued, and they likely will get sued. And that's one of the fears that retailers have, any company has coming to the United States, is we're a very litigious society, and you need to take measures to counter that. So we really um, spend a lot of time with clients on the employment issues, making sure that you, well, either we or somebody else prepare proper manuals, Um, we do it so that it works in most every state, even if they're just going to come into one state, because once you do the first one and then you open stores in other states, it's, 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 it's not an expensive thing to do. The only exception that is California, they have their own set of rules and they have to be a bit different. Um, also risk management insurance, making sure you have the proper insurance in place is extremely important in order again to protect the company.
0: And so from an intellectual uh, property perspective, you your firm Shows up IP for, I'm sure, those European or international businesses. But uh, are you able to speak a little about protecting
1: one's IP globally? Well, so we work with – so generally, if it's a European retailer, they have counsel in Europe that hopefully has protected their IP, at least uh, in Europe. And we work with them to make sure that it it gets extended to North America. Um, and there's recent laws in place that if you're going to do um, trademark protection, you really have to engage U.S. counsel to do that. So that's something we focus on. And that should be done early on. As soon as someone is thinking about coming to the United States, they should st- start doing that to protect their name. Uh, we have one client that's thinking of coming now for about five or six years. That's one of the ones that you mentioned, Jeff. And uh, every four months, their name comes up. We we reserve the name for them in the United States and we have to extend it each, 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 every four month period because eventually they will come, and they don't want anybody else to use their name.
0: Mm-hmm. And wh- how about do you guys work in China?
1: Uh, we we do some work in China, but it's not representing retailers. It's more representing Chinese companies that want to organize themselves similar to United States mm-hmm. uh, for for governance purposes.
0: Yeah, because the intellectual property issue on. Uh, from our side at least what we've seen a lot of is companies getting held up when they're selling their businesses with someone sitting in China on their brand name and maybe even then tying up the stock that's being produced in China and that the deal will not close if somehow the IP holder the brand uh, pays off this I guess troll whatever you want to call it and it's just a, a remarkable sort of issue that no one could ever believe would ever happen, and typically happens the week before closing the transaction of their life.
2: Funny you should mention that. One of my clients that I'm working with right now is doing a joint venture of uh, IP with a Chinese company, and I didn't realize until I went into there that their lawyers here in the United States had done an incredible job in protecting all kinds of IP uh, uh, for Every class that you can think of, and they spend an incredible amount of time registering and re-registering and monitoring and so forth so that they don't get caught in that exact same problem.
0: Yeah, because also you have to – sometimes if you don't use the mark, uh, you have to yeah. you know, make a make a, a plea to continue or extend. Um, very interesting. So what mistakes? What, what, what are the – I mean, are there one or two mistakes? You know, do you, your water cooler joke about clients coming in as they, I bet these guys haven't done – these
1: few things. So before we get to mistakes, um, just something that we found very interesting when we started working with foreign retailers. Um, So if it's a European retailer, then let's say they, they're first, they're, they're French based and then they expand to Italy. They expand to other European countries. Typically do they do that with a, on a franchise model Um, and they find a franchise partner and that's how they expand through Europe and other parts of the world. So when we started meeting with these retailers, at this conference, MAPIC, mm-hmm. uh, the first thing they would say is, um, we need a franchise partner. Introduce us to franchise partners. Yeah, in America, good luck. In yeah. America, and good luck is right, um, because th- that model is a different model here. Here, a franchise means something different. You need to prepare a franchise agreement. You have the Each state is different in terms of the laws. It's got to be licensed in every state, and there's very strict regulations, so... A lot of it is education. And then the question is, okay, if you can't do a real franchise, what can you do? And-
0: what's, what's actually quite interesting right now, we're in, we're in a, quite a few instances whereby big international companies are coming to us saying, we understand now that there's no franchise. Yeah, it took uh, about eight years yeah, for them to finally get that. Exactly. <laughs> but but um, don't you think that the landscape is changing, they're telling us, uh, so much so that the convergence of Specialty stores trying to do things differently. Department stores trying to do things differently. Real estate mall operators uh, actually thinking more um, as retail operators. I mean, in some instances, um, I
1: can think of two or three. Right. Uh, so when uh, Aeropostel went bankrupt, ex- with Simon, it was exactly. Simon, and I think they partnered up with another with be, with with, yeah, G- uh, yeah. with General Growth at the time um, to yeah. to run the company. Yeah. To I to know the Cambridge
0: company. in Canada uh, is, has launched uh, a platform for. I think it's the time. Uh, mag, not Time Magazine, um, Time Out right. uh, uh, food concept and they're launching those in, in Canada so the point is is that it may not be a franchise but you might be able to find a partner that,
1: that may not 5-10 years ago have been able to, to work with you. Right but the way they were used to doing it at least described to us is they wanted to have the partner, the franchise partner whatever you call it, put up it, all the dough take all the risk <laughs> and they were going to lend their name and it's like can't be that different in Europe no one's going to agree to that so whatever you call it there's got to be you know equity you know sweat in the game some one way or another there's another thing I'd like to hear your thoughts on um, so if you come in with a partner whatever you call the partner are you concerned about brand dilution so you're coming into a new market a new country with your brand that is really treasured to you you're passionate about it you've spent years building it up in whatever country you're from or Europe. And now you're coming somewhere else and you have a partner that's
0: controlling your brand. Well, so you're, you're hitting on a really interesting point, and this happens all over the world. You know, That's why selecting a partner and pick a country, uh, whether it be the Middle East or whether it be in India or Brazil or wherever you're going, um, is so important because they also have to have the balance sheet to… Uh, deal with your with the investments required to do it if it's a franchise but also if they are not good retailers they're going to end up with a whole bunch of inventory that's unsold and they're going to flush that inventory at discount and unless there are checks and balances and provisions in place allowing for that company to not do that um, and obviously it's tempting to do that because you want to mine working capital Mm -hmm. right to do the the new the new orders for the next season it, it, it's absolutely something. That, so that so
1: that's what I get back to doing it right to start with. So one, I would encourage them to think about whether they should do this themselves so they can control the brand and figure out how they're going to raise money to do that. And that might be the preferable way, but if you can't do it that way, then to really make sure the operating <laughs> agreement that you're setting up with your partner, we won't call it a franchise in the United States yep. is done correctly. Oh. I, I know there's a very successful London based retailer right now. I can't mention their name, who's hitting it out of the park throughout Europe, in Asia, and they have stores in the United States with a partner, and the partner's just not performing. And it's really dragging down their brand.
0: But what's interesting, and maybe Jeff, talk a little bit about this, You know, we have a lot of familiarity with these platform companies around the world, and one of them, who I'm sure I'm, I'm totally fine to speak of because they're friends and, and long, long allies, uh, is the Altair Group in Dubai. You know, these companies are hugely professional and they organize themselves. Uh, in some cases, I would say, have set up with the you know, next generation thinking or the latest generation thinking in and omni-channel and marketing and, and, and organizing themselves. But the platform effect of having 50 brands and a few department stores sitting on one platform is, is interesting because of the synergies that are provided across one central organization shared by lots of brands. T- talk a little bit about that and and how it's interesting in the United States, maybe for, you know, roll-ups
2: of digital native brands or, you know, this platform effect? Well, in principle, when you think about it, it's logical. If you can have shared services for back office and stuff that the consumer doesn't see, uh, shipping back offices, accounting, uh, and so forth, it it makes sense. The problem, however, is that... um, uh, you have to organize each of the brands or each of the businesses as separate sales and marketing organizations. Uh, what I saw when it, was, when it was first started with our friends in Altair and that they had us help them with is they had shared marketing services. That's when you run into trouble because certain uh, certain promotions of, of a beauty company are different times and, uh, and they have a particular need. They need something on a particular day, whether it's Mother's Day or Valentine's Day and so forth, and But in the queue, the retail company that's selling apparel, they had their things lined up in the queue and there was a lot of friction. So as a practical matter, if you think of these brands as sales, marketing, and merchandising organizations, and you think of the shared services of everything else, it can work very well. So
1: it's it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Uh, we, we were in London in June and met with a um, successful London-based retailer. Um, I can't mention what. Area, of the industry they're in, uh, but it was founded. Uh, so now the it's a family-owned business, and the uh, two sons are very active in the business, but the father's still active. And I asked how the business got started, and they told me their father and uh, mother uh, got married. They they went to some small town in in the UK somewhere. And his father was really very interested in bikes. He wanted to open a bike store. But in this small town, there was already a bike store. So he couldn't open a bike store. So he opened this other store and it's grown, really grown very nicely. And they started buying some companies in other parts of Europe. And their thinking is they're putting an infrastructure in place, almost like practicing, for eventually coming across the ocean to the United States. So, um, So that's their thinking of doing it, which I thought was very interesting.
0: So come back to the water cooler mistakes that you guys all chuckle about. That you, When you meet a new client, you, you, you're going to say, I bet these guys haven't done it. So think about some of the things uh, that, that – that some of the out-of-the-gates things that people
1: have to not do. So they sign parent guarantees and they put the European parent online. We talked about that before. Um, they pick a lousy location for their first store. Um, not sure why, but that happens a lot. Um, they don't do diligence on the real estate. Um, especially in, in New York City, much of the risk is on the retailer. So you really need to hire a very good uh, contractor, construction uh, person, an architect to really go into the space before you sign your lease to try to get a feel for what's what you're going to encounter because it's going to be your responsibility to take care of it, and that's not going to be on your pro forma unless you really identify it. Uh, they need to hire an expediter to make sure that their use is permitted. The last thing you want to do yep. is – is is sign a lease and start working and realize you can't get a CO because you need a special use permit, mm-hmm. um, and these are mistakes that are often yeah.
0: made. Yeah, and I, I often uh, advise people to to work with Forum Analytics, for example, that is a, uh, a business that allows people to use their e-commerce data to understand where they are, uh, their customers are based on their zip codes and, and where they're shipping to. And also to sort of cross-reference that with what they're seeing as the patterns of flow of foot flow into those various streets or, or blocks, and and to actually you know analyze the data they have because presumably they have e-commerce data. If they if they're coming here, there's a reason for it, and increasingly it's because they've already
1: been getting some demand. Right. So we've been seeing um, changes in how retailers are coming to the United States. Used to be they want to be in Manhattan. They would in this flagship store. They spend a lot of money. The store would not make any money. And it was basically for branding. It was a very expensive branding proposition. And if they were lucky, they were, were, they knew what they were doing. After a couple of years, they maybe start making money. But what we've been seeing now, and curious to hear this, because I'm sure you see a lot of it also, is when, when brands are thinking of coming here, they start with social media mm. uh, before they have any physical locations. And then once they have social media, they're kind of, introducing their brand to the United States and then they start doing some e-commerce in the U.S. And then, Morty, exactly what you said, they can then see where their sales are coming from and that gives them an idea of perhaps where they should be thinking about opening stores.
0: Yeah, you can use the, the Facebook pixel and, and also use that to understand where people are, are, are engaging with your, with your brand. Mm-hmm. Um, we often say that um, there are three ways to come here. You can partner with a department store. You can open your own retail and, or you can open your own e-commerce site. Uh, and there are two kinds of e-commerce sites. There's one shipped from the United Kingdom or Europe or Asia and one that has a, a DC uh, in the United States, which allows for quicker shipping and returns uh, in some instances. Uh, some of the big guys from Europe are doing so much business that they've got it down to one or two days now or two days, I think. But we often say, don't come here unless you're going to do two of those three things, So just to open a store with no e-commerce and no department store partner or or some kind of partnership means that you're going to be floating in the wind. I mean, no one's going to see you. Being with the department stores is about getting eyeballs and having an omni-channel business. Everyone knows about that. We don't have to talk about it now. But um, Jeff, when you have these companies uh, come knocking on your door, are they thinking about doing two or three of these? Or they typically want to just do one and put their toe in the water?
2: Well, you asked you asked David about what are the water cooler jokes uh, and the mistakes that people make. Uh, mine is not a water cooler joke. It's a very serious issue because this is the difference between success and failure. And that is we don't do that around here syndrome. Um, you mm-hmm. know, that's yeah. not how we do it in Europe. Or wherever. Uh, or wherever, okay? It's not how we do it. That's in, a merchandising in, thing in too, America. Right. And it deals with merchandising, it deals with shipments, it deals with packaging, it deals with presentation, mm-hmm. uh, and if the companies can't can come to grips with the, we don't do that around here syndrome, uh, they almost guaranteeing failure. Uh, but with with regard to, you know, when you talk about the three things, how many times have, you know, it costs nothing to get up there on the internet, you're a grain of sand in the Sahara Desert, somebody's got to find you. hmm so it's not just getting up in the internet. It's uh, what you always call, Morty, is the customer acquisition costs. Mm-hmm. You know, in the internet, uh, they talk about CAC, which is customer, how much it costs to get a customer to come to your company. In the brick-and-mortar world, that's called rent. Yes. <laughs> um, and so the truth is you have to do at least two of the three, preferably the three, and you have to have an open mind and you have to do it to fit the American marketplace. So um, just
0: to go into a bit more granular detail on some of the ways of of dealing with uh, real estate here. There's street retail and there's mall retail. How do you, David, from a legal perspective, see doing a business with either of those entities?
1: So, you know, we're lawyers. We're not real estate brokers. So we don't choose locations. Uh, We do have clients ask us thinking sometimes because we're in the area. So if they're thinking of coming to the New York metro area, we're we're lawyers, but we're also customers. So uh, we'll give them our opinions based on a customer, but obviously, you know, they need to talk to the specialists about that. Um, It's a challenge and difficult to do a deal in Manhattan. The landlords are tough. The leases are long. Um, It's something that we need to educate the retailer about because they're not used to Having so many turns of a document, they're not used to parties being so unreasonable. Not everyone is, but they tend to be unreasonable and it's mm-hmm. difficult and it takes a long time to get a deal done. I think that's probably the most surprised as how long it takes to get a lease done, especially in Manhattan or New York City.
0: You've seen... I don't know, but hundreds maybe of of businesses, brands come to America from a product and inventory selection perspective. I mean, I know this is a little bit out of your sweet spot, but you'll see where I'm going with it. You pick a date to open your store, which is at the beginning, presumably, of the season in question. You put millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars of inventory in that place. You've hired the people. Um, are there any tricks to uh, that, or, or things that you could tell brands to do to try and make sure that they're not going to trip up these, these deadlines and, and the time and action calendar, because from a legal perspective, they didn't do something which meant that they're going to open three months late, which means their inventory is going to be stale.
1: So my first piece of advice would be, please let us know <laughs> um, so we can help back into that date in terms of documents. But also, as I said before, where they're going to get caught up is one, how long it takes to get a lease done, but even more so in the construction. So once the space is turned over to them, they have to fit out their store, and that's where they get caught up if they haven't done the diligence ahead of time. And they're gonna not only are they they might miss their date, but they also may have to start paying rent before their store is open, which is the last position they want to be in. So they really need to communicate that to their professionals. I would encourage them not to set the date until they've talked to their professionals to make sure that it all lines up.
0: So we, we've had a, a good a good run here. Uh, I'll give you both the opportunity to answer uh, Jeff first and maybe the last word to David. Uh, what are some things that you're finding interesting in uh, this part of our industry, whether it's crossing borders, whether it's brands, uh, areas of business that are new, maybe places that you, David, are, are seeing new opportunity uh, and new brands emerging?
2: Maybe just riff well, on that for a second. Sure. Um, what I think is interesting is watching some of the, the activities that going on in our firm where where we see a lot of these emerging brands that understand that a pure play is is not enough, that they have to have some brick and mortar, but they can't afford long-term leases. Uh, they can't afford, uh, you know, the expense of really setting up a, a retail business. And so what's interesting is I think that the developers and I think that that people like David and their law firms can actually put some uh, blue sky thinking on this is to come up with a a proposition that um that allows these people to try to be successful in their business and and it's essentially they're taking a chance and i believe the four mall developers need to take a chance because everybody needs some newness i agree with that so David. i think
1: you're saying we didn't answer the part of the question about the malls uh, but i think you're saying especially in the malls because the malls are challenged these days a lot of flexibility in terms of the terms of the lease um, so you'll see to your point, Jeff, where more landlords are willing to say, well, fine, we'll lower the base rent or maybe have no base rent. And we're sharing the upside by way of a percentage rent, um, until a certain point of time when you're making money.
2: And maybe shorter mm-hmm. leases.
1: So you are seeing that you've, you've, you're seeing shorter leases, but you're also seeing kickout rights. So after usually it's a three year period right. where if you don't achieve a certain gross sales, it's usually mutual. Both parties have the right to kick out. So you're you are seeing more flexibility, um, especially from the mall owners uh, with these types of transactions. I think what's really interesting and new is, uh, well, first, I'm I'm glad we stayed away from the terms um, activate and curate uh, because I think they're (laughs) overused terms. I'm getting there on experiential. That's kind of overused, but I guess that still makes a lot of sense. But when I'm thinking about and look at what's happening, it's really about creating communities. Mm -hmm. Um, So when when you're talking, most projects now are mixed-use type projects. Mm-hmm. That, By definition, that's what we have in, in New York and other urban centers. But even when you go out and you have new developers that are rebuilt, they're mixed-use. And from a developer's point of view, from a landlord's point of view, it's creating a community. How do those uses work together? How does one plus one equals three? And how does that work? And then you, you, so you start with the larger project. Then you go to the stores. And the stores themselves are trying to comate, create communities. How are we going to bring people in? Um, it's not just selling one product anymore. You have to do more. So whether that's opening a cafe, having an area with actual books where people can sit down and relax, having a co-working space, you've seen all these different types of things that are happening now within the stores themselves. So whoever's successful of creating communities, I think is going to win at the end of the day. And if the developers and the retailers can work together to do that and to be flexible enough to do that, then I think that's a that's a key for success. Well, yeah. just, just
0: hearing you right now, uh, we're, we're, I'm sure everyone listening will agree that you're not the
2: average lawyer based on what you just <laughs> said. Yeah, and you know, to the, to David's point, have you seen the ads for TD Bank? Looks like you walk walking into a coffee shop. Yeah. Well, no. so
1: so ca- uh, Capital One has yeah, Capital they call one. them cafes. I was just with uh, one of the real estate lawyers for Capital One, and um, she was telling me about their cafes. And I have a Capital One. What's in my wallet? I have a Capital One credit card. And when I go up to her Boston office, there's a cafe. And I said, how is it supposed to work? She says, well, you go in there, you have your coffee, and there's people around that can talk about different products and services. Yeah, it's
0: great. Everyone's going to be hopped up on caffeine across America every retail store in America.
1: <laughs> but let me just get back to one point in terms of the community and flexibility. So, and this gets down down into the weeds a little bit. So the leases have not yet caught up to where... Retailers are and developers need to be. Because they need to
0: use more of their space for other uses other than gross margin per square foot from a product.
1: That, and also the leases are not flexible. So you have a narrow use clause. And if a retailer needs to do other things to bring people in, the use class clause can't be so narrow. They're rigid, yeah. From the retailer's point of view, especially the larger ones, they prohibit different uses. In the center. And you can't do that anymore, other than the really, really obnoxious and terrible uses, because the developer needs the flexibility to be able to move with the times and bring different things in. So at some point, I hope the legal documents get caught up with what's happening. And that's driven not only by the lawyers, but also by the clients themselves.
0: I mean, that, that's a, a wonderful place to end. Uh, thank you for both of you for incredible insights uh, about coming to America, I think, is probably the the, the main theme of this uh, of this uh, recording. And um, thank you, Jeff Lurie of Traub and David Rabinowitz of Golston and Stores. Thank you, Morty. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry, and it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it.